welcome. Um, welcome back for those who came back. How many people are here for the first time tonight? Tonight, like first time for the course, like missed last week. Good, good. Well, may God have mercy on your souls for missing last week. And uh, I'm kidding. Um, uh, I'm excited because tonight we actually get into the book of Hebrews, which is always good in a study on the book of Hebrews. And um, so I'm looking forward to, uh, to what God says. Um, someone, someone phrased something to me that I think um, stuck with me that really made a lot of sense, which is, um, you'll get the most out of tonight what you hear Father saying to you through me. And, and I think that's a, a pretty impactful statement. And again, I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. So... Um, but what, it's not so much what I'm saying as much as what you hear Father saying through me. That's what's going to be the most impactful um, for you. So um, with that in mind, why don't we uh, open with a, a word of prayer and see what Father wants to say to us all. Heavenly Father, we are privileged and honored that you have um, left for us your word. Um, a way of communicating to us who you are um, and who you are to us and who you are in us. And I pray, Father, that tonight as we begin the study and looking into your book of uh, Hebrews, that we would hear from you. That each person here would walk out of here um, sensing something special coming from you that they would know you in a deeper way, more than just know about you. That this wouldn't be a study in intellectualism, but one of knowing your heart. And I look forward to what you're going to do in all of us, myself included. So I confess my dependence upon you, Father, and can't wait to see what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2, if, if everything goes to what I think it should go. Um, but God may have other plans, so we'll be open to that too. Uh, so if you want to turn to page uh, 14 then of your, of your syllabus. If um, many, many of you know me, uh, and you know me well, um, so you know that I am a sports fan. Um, which shows great faith because I'm a Leaf fan on top of that. So I, I have a lot of faith. Um, or misplaced faith, yeah. Or, uh, or I'm not very wise, one of the two. Um, but uh, one of the great things about being a sports fan is the, the conversation that sports fans have with one another about sports. So uh, even when you know, the sports are over, uh, you know, the season's over, the conversations go on. Uh, about who's the greatest and who is better and, and so forth. And so uh, I remember growing up, they always had the conversation of who was better, uh, Wayne Gretzky or Mario Lemieux. How many people thought Lemieux was better? Uh, we'll pray for you then. I mean, <laughs> How many people thought Gretzky was better? Yeah, I, I always was a Gretzky fan, but, but I, I, it, that's the great I thing. I my opinion now. But then, <laughs> then I thought Mario. You did? Okay. Yeah. What, that, but that's what's great about sports is you have that debate and you, you can go back and forth. And, um, 
you know, it, it's not so easy in team sports. You know, in, in boxing, they had the, uh, the you know, one-on-one. Uh, Fraser and Ali, and they had some, some great fights over the years. And, and it was a great competition to see who was better, who was stronger, who was the, the better fighter. And, and sometimes what you do in sports is you say, well, what if we had Muhammad Ali versus Mike Tyson? And these are two people from different eras competing, kind of like saying who would have been better, Gretzky or Crosby, two different areas. And they get in all kinds of debates and, and, um, and hypothetical arguments and so forth. And, and so this idea of, of comparing who's better. And, and it even extends beyond sports. I mean, it happens in, in other things. And if you don't know who Team Edward or Team Jacob is, don't worry. <laughs> this is all I know about them. They're, they're in a movie. And... Um, but it, it, it's just this debate that goes on. Who's better? Who is better? And there's something that, that we are constantly striving to find out. Who is the greatest? And in many ways, that's what the book of Hebrews is about. Who is the greatest? Who is better? And so what the writer of Hebrews is going to do <clears throat> is he's going to, to kind of have a, a competition between Jesus and everybody else. And he's just going to go through them one by one. And being that he's writing to the group of Hebrews, he's going to use the, the people or the things that the Hebrews have typically looked to, that they have, they have typically depended upon, and he's going to show how Jesus is better than anything else they've had before. And, and the purpose being in all this is that they would then begin to trust Jesus, because that's the theme, the two major themes of the book of Hebrews, right? The first one is Jesus is you don't sound convinced. Jesus is better. So live by faith. So trust him. So walk in him. And that's, that's the two major themes of the book of Hebrews. And so he's going to begin by showing how Jesus is better. Better than who and in what ways? In order to strengthen our faith, strengthen our trust that we would live in him. And more than just, as we saw last week, more than just a one-time act for salvation. Because the Christian life involves a moment-by-moment, regular commitment or trust in Him. Um, an ongoing faith that's so important. It's not just a one-time thing. And so, what we want to see now then is this argument that the, that the writer of Hebrews is going to make. So, he's going to begin in Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 3, and he's going to start talking first about the prophets about how God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Think about the ways that God spoke to His people or really everybody in the Old Testament. What were some of the methods that God, God used to, to communicate with, with man? Dreams. He used dreams, yeah, with Nebuchadnezzar and Joseph. Who, what are some other ways that He communicated with man? No one flesh, so he used circumstances, yeah, and, and weather. He did that with, um, with Gideon and the dew, yeah. Burning bush. Sorry? Burning a burning bush, bush. yeah, to, to communicate to Moses. What other ways did he communicate with man? Through a donkey. Through a donkey. That's my favorite. That gives me hope. <laughs> if he can talk to a donkey, he can talk through me. I've, I've got a lot of hope that way. Yes, Rhoda. He... Many times, many times, speaking to, to um, oh, the name just dropped off my head. He spoke to, to Joseph. He spoke to Daniel that way. Um, 
My, my favorite is when he spoke to, to Samson's parents and he promised Samson's mother a child. And so dad came home after wanting a child for a long time and, and mom's got great news. We're going to have a son. We're going to have a child. An angel told me. And then the dad starts pulling his hair going, oh, I wish that angel would come back and tell us how to raise him now. <laughs> Parenting, the one thing we're looking for, right? Um, great. What are some other things he used? Prophets. He used prophets, yeah. He wrote on the wall. I mean, it was, it was almost limitless. I mean, I'm guessing he spoke through, to Jonah through a fish. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Jonah got the message. Um, so he used all kinds of different methods. And that's the, in many portions, in many ways. And, and if you could read Greek, and this would sound so much better because it rhymes. And so it just, it's that classical play on words that means nothing to us because we only speak English uh, or Spanish. Um, but so he's spoken to us in many different ways. But now, in these last days, in this last age, he's spoken to us in his son. And really what it's saying, not so much uh, the, what he's saying here, but the method. He's spoken to us by the Son, by His Son. So he's, he's communicating to us now with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's now the, the, the last method that He's going to use to, to let it be known to, to us who He is. Um, whom He appointed heir over all things, through whom also He made the world. So now he's going to begin to, to really, I, give, I think, give a great doxology about who Jesus is, who this Son is. And so in verse 3, then he says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power when he had made purification of sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 3 is a loaded verse. I mean, you could spend, you know, a pastor could probably spend two sermons or more just in this verse alone. It is, every line is, is loaded. I mean, think, it starts off, He is the radiance of His glory. Meaning that, that Jesus is the, the personification. It's, Jesus is the shining forth of God's glory, who He is. And, and not only that, He is the representation of His nature. And the word here to, to describe representation is really the, or the exact representation, is the idea behind how they made coins in this time. So in the, in the Greco-Roman world, they would, they would take a, a, a die to stamp coins, to make a coin, much like we do today with our you know, manufacturing process where we stamp and mold things and so forth. And the idea behind this is, if I didn't have the die, but I had the coin, I could figure out what the die would look like from the coin. Does that make sense? Because it's the exact image on here. It's the, the die has been stamped onto the coin. And so now I know exactly what that die looks like because I've got the coin. You with me on this one? All right, do we need a CSI illustration? No? So that's what we see Jesus is. He's the exact representation. We know who the Father is because we know who Jesus is. He's the exact representation. He's the other side of the die in many ways here. And not only that, he upholds all things by the word of his power. So he's in complete control. And when, he's, that when he had made purification of sins, notice here, it's not that he's going to one day. It's not that he's in the process of doing it. But it's when he had. It's something that he has completed in the past. It's a done deal. 
So when he had made purification of sins, he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so what we see here is Jesus having a completed work. It's a done deal. That's the idea behind sitting down now. He has finished the work. And that's why on the cross he cried out, It is finished. Because there's nothing left for him to do. He's made it all possible. And so Hebrews 1 to 3 just is a great doxology about who God is, who Jesus is. And he's beginning to show how much more important it is that we trust Jesus compared to the prophets. Now, it's interesting. You think about the prophets. I mean, the prophets were were the people that shared the word of God. How important would it have been for the people to follow the prophets, to obey the prophets? Incredible. Immensely huge. They didn't always do that, though. There's one great story in, in 1 Kings 22 where a king of Israel says, uh, should I go up and attack this country? And all his prophets, so-called prophets at least, came up and said, yeah, go. Yo, oh yeah, go, go. You'll, you'll be able to do it. And then someone says, shouldn't we ask a prophet of God? Which makes you ask, well, who are the other prophets he was talking to? But shouldn't we ask a prophet of God? Isn't there someone that we could ask that would tell us what God says? And then someone says, yeah, we could ask him, but he always gives us bad news. So let's not ask him. We don't want to hear what he has to say because, you know, he always says the most negative thing possible. So we'll just ignore that advice and do what we want to do. And, and that's kind of the approach they had. Why listen to that? I mean, how much better would they have been to have listened to that prophet? Because he came along and he said, don't go. You'll lose. And they ignored him. And guess what they did? They lost. And so they should have listened to that prophet. This whole story of Israel is, is a lesson on not listening to what God's asked you to do. Whether it was when they went into Babylonian captivity, when, you know, with Saul, with, with all the many kings of Israel, they just would not listen to the prophets. And we see the ramifications of that. Well, if we ought to follow the prophets, how much more should we now begin to follow Jesus? How much more should we trust in what Jesus says and look to Jesus? This is the argument he's making to these people. And remember, these are, these are Hebrew, Hebrew Christians. Jews that have grown up, you know, revering their prophets, which is always kind of interesting because, you know, when a prophet is alive, they hate him. And then after a little while, then they just look and say, what a wonderful guy he was. Right. They, they wanted to, you know, string Moses up and get rid of him. But now he's the hero. Uh, they wanted to run the prophets out of town. And suddenly they're all, you know, excited about them. And, and, and that's kind of their mentality. <clears throat> and so he's saying, you know, if we listen to them now, how much more ought we to listen to Jesus? Because look at who He is. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. It's who He is. He upholds all things. He's in complete control. He's saved us when He made purifications of sins, and that salvation is done. And now He's at the right hand of God. Amen? So, who wins between this fight, Jesus and the prophets? First round knockout. Pretty easy, right? So now he's going to go and talk about the next challenger, which are the angels. Which again, they are, you know, angels are, are rather large in the Jewish tradition, in the, in the mystique of what it means to be a Jew. Because they had so many angels come and, and minister to them and to rescue them and to, to speak to them. And, and so now he says, well, what about these angels? So in verse 4 he says, now having become as much better than the angels... 
he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So because of what we just read in verse 3, he's so much greater than the angels. He's so much more important than that. And so what he's going to do now, beginning in verse 5 to the end of the chapter, is he's going to use a, a series of Old Testament um, passages to, to make his case. Which is, again, why we can derive the idea that he is writing to, to Hebrew Christians. Because they, they would have a, a solid understanding of scriptures. He's using something that they value in order to make the case. Does that make sense? So if, it, there is, if you're trying to debate with somebody, you're not going to use illustrations that, that don't make sense to them. You're going to use something that clicks. And that's what he's doing here. He's going to use their word, their scriptures, to make and build his case. So Jesus is much better than the angels. In verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. So verse 5 here is a collection of two quotes from the Old Testament. Most of these quotes that we see here are from the book of Psalms, but he's got one here that's outside the book of Psalms, and that's in 2 Samuel. So the first part, which is, <clears throat> You are my son, and today I have begotten you. That's out of Psalm 2 and verse 7. And so what he's beginning to do in stress is the relationship that is between God and Jesus. It's, it's one of intimacy. It's, it's father versus son. And, and this is important because, you know, what are angels to God? Messengers. Messengers, yeah. They're servants, yeah. And so he's saying here, Jesus is a son. And I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And the idea here in the, the, the tensing, that it, the verb tensing he uses, is that it's a continual. I am his son, father, he is my son, ongoing. And so when you compare a son to the servant, it's, it's no competition. The son is always greater than the servant. A, a friend of mine, uh, his parents own a, a, a Williams coffee shop on Fairway Road. And so when, when a son walks in, guess what, he, guess what he gets? Whatever he wants. And how much does he pay for it? Nothing. He's the son. He's got free reign. In fact, there was, there was the order. Whatever this person asks for, you give it to him because he's my son. But if one of the employees walks in and tries to pull that off, what's going to happen? <laughs> Won't last very long. He'll have a very poor uh, employee review, right? It's not going to work because a son is always greater than the servant. You probably pull that off a lot, Jim, don't you? <laughs> and then he gets into verse six now, and he says, "And when he when he again be, uh, sorry, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him." You know, there's there's this idea out there that often that that um, that Jesus is just another angel. In fact, that's what the Mormons believe in many other cults. They have this idea that Jesus is an angel. Or some would even go as far as to say that Jesus and Satan are brothers. And that, you know, they're, they're in this titanic struggle and, and fighting for the air and so forth. And all of it is horrible, horrible air and heresy. And, and it's just, it's wrong. And, and we see it here because he's making the case here. He's different from the angels. He's greater than the angels. And in fact, let all the angels of God worship him. There's a great scene in, in the book of Revelation, right? Where they, they cry out the angels, this heavenly host are crying out, worthy is the lamb. And they're singing and they're worshiping the lamb. 
Now, if Jesus is not God, and all these angels are worshiping Jesus, what would that be? What would those angels be committing? They'd be worshiping someone other than God, which is called idolatry, right? And so if this is the case, if Jesus is not God, then all those angels are committing idolatry right before God. And, and that's what he's trying to say here. Look, let him, let all, sorry, let all the angels of God worship Jesus because he is greater. You worship the one that is greater than you. And so we see the angels here not committing idolatry, but worshiping God. Um, yes. Um, what, is, what is the firstborn mean? Because Jesus doesn't have beginning or end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some translations here use the, uh, and when he again brings the begotten into the world. And so it's not that, it, that, you know, when his life began in Bethlehem and so forth. It's the, the idea that he's being sent or coming or, or it's, uh, he's from God to us. Verse 7, he goes off and goes on and he quotes now from a Psalm 104, verse 4. And of the angel, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? What he's going to do in, in this next, uh, these three verses here is he's going to compare what an angel is to who Jesus is. And so verse 7 is talking about the angels who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Apparently, in around this time, Jewish tradition, they viewed angels as being created uh, anew every day. So they would start from this, this river of fire, and God would pull them out and create them. They would go and do their work and their service, only to the, at the end of the day, they would come home, and they would return to that, excuse me, to that river of fire, to be created afresh the next day. I, I don't think that's true, uh, at least not in our 24-hour period of days, because Obviously, Satan's still around. Um, we read stories of Gabriel and, and uh, um, Michael and so forth. So I, I don't think that's true. But I think the idea that they're getting behind it is valid, which is that angels are finite beings. Angels are, 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 are something that's created. Compare that to Jesus in verses 8 and 9. But the, of the Son, now that's the angels are temporary, are finite, but of the Son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And so we see here he's on the throne for how long? Forever and ever. He's an infinite being. He's, the, he's eternal. He's no beginning and no end. And he's on the throne. He's greater than the angels. And it's interesting here. It says, therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. So we see here the relationship again between Jesus and the Father. And he's um, placed him, Jesus, above your companions. So he's greater than the angels. Then in verse 10, he's going to quote from Psalm 102 and verse 25. And it says, And you, Lord, in the beginning in the foundation of, laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens and the works of your hands. And so he's stressing here that Jesus is the creator. You know, growing up in, in Sunday school and so forth, I kind of pictured that it was God the Father that created everything. 
But the reality is, well, it was all three together. But it was God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit that was creating everything. I mean, when I look back on it, I, I, I see it and go, well, that makes sense. You know, let us make man in our own image. You see it again, the Trinity right there and present. And so he was the creator before all things, and he's greater than creation. Because the creator is always greater than the creation. I mean, the <clears throat> was it Da Vinci that made the Mona Lisa? Well, who's greater? Well, it was Da Vinci, because it's, it's of him. It's a product of him. And then in verses 11 and 12, he says, They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up, like a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So he's created all this. He's above it all, and yet it's all temporary. Everything that was created from Genesis 1-1 onward is temporary. Because we read in Revelation that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and the old will pass away. It's all going to disappear. It's all going to get rolled up. And so, again, he's, he's showing the, the eternal nature of Jesus Christ, the, the fact that he's steady. And I love that, the fact that he's the same. He's not changing. And so when he says, I love you, you know what that means? How long will He love you? Forever. Is He going to suddenly change the rules on us? Well, you were saved by grace before, but as of today, now I'm going to have to change that. And now you've got to work hard. No. He's steady. Which is good. He's not always predictable in what He does, but His character has never changed. Amen. And then in uh, verse, verse 13, quoting now from Psalm 110, verse, verse 1, he says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? It's interesting, and if you go and look up the actual passage in Psalm 110, verse 1, what you see here is it, it says, Then my Lord says to my Lord, Meaning, Jesus, my Lord, says to the Father, my Lord. You see this idea, again, of God and the Father, the Trinity, even in the Old Testament. He said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Of what angel gets that? No angel gets that. No angel has that honor. No angel has that opportunity. So how much greater is Jesus? Does that make sense? On a side note, who else gets to sit by the, at the right hand of the Father, by the way? We do. So here is Jesus with this incredible honor. No angels had this. Jesus has. And then who does he share that with? Us. That's simply remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. And, and the reason he's doing it is because that was what the intended purpose of man was. See, turn, uh, turn the page now to page 15 in your syllabus. What we're going to look at now is 
Hebrews, 10, Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 18, where, where the author is going to continue on. Now, if you've noticed, we skipped a few verses. We skipped verses 1 to 4, and we're going to come back to that after the break, um, and, and I'll explain why we did it then. Uh, but now in 5 to 18, he's going to do a little bit of application. So he's shown that Jesus is greater than the prophets, and he's already shown now that Jesus is greater than the angels. Well, why, why is that important? What's, what's the significance of that? And, and, and what's the application of that? And it really comes down to this idea of the incarnation of God. Now, what does it mean, the word incarnation? Become flesh. Become flesh. That's right. So what we see, the incarnation of God is referring to when Jesus, God, came as a man. And so verses 5 to 18 is really stressing this point here that Jesus came as a man to restore our lost destiny, something which no angel could do. So we, he's presented the case from the Old Testament standpoint and the verses. Now he's going to present the case as to why the angels are insufficient. But Jesus is sufficient. He's better because of this is what he did. And what he did was restore our lost destiny. See, what was man's destiny? No? Well, not in the beginning. Not when, when God made man. That was the result of the fall. Praise God. Mm -hmm. Yep. Isn't man to uh, basically be God's representation or his image bearer? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And that's that. I think is the ultimate one. Mm -hmm. But if you think of the command that God gave man. In the garden. He forms man and he forms woman. And then he instructs them in Genesis 1. And what does he say? Take dominion of my creation. And, and serve creation and have authority over it. Look after it. Uh, be fruitful and multiply. It's, it's now care for creation. All of creation. Not just this tiny speck of dust that's you know, flipping around the universe at you know, breakneck speed. But all of creation, God has given dominion to man. He's given man authority over that. In order that we would know him and be the representation of God, the, the, the image bearer of God, but in authority over it. That was man's destiny, and he lost that in the garden. Let me, let me show you that, in, in starting in verse, uh, verses 5 to 8. So we're going to see what is God's purpose for man here. And beginning in verse 5, he says, For he did not subject to the angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. So when he made creation, he didn't then turn to, to Lucifer or to Gabriel or to any other angel and says, Okay, look after the place. You're the one that's going to be responsible for this. He didn't do that. Maybe that really irked Satan. You know, being an angel, and he thought, hey, this is a pretty good place. I wouldn't mind having that kind of a responsibility. And he got overlooked on the, on the hiring. And so maybe that's what happened. That's what irked his pride. He thought, well, maybe I can replace this God. I can be a better God. Because he didn't give this dominion. He didn't give creation to, to an angel. 
And then in verses 6, 7, and 8, he's going to be talking about a man, but who, what man? Not Jesus, but mankind. The initial Adam, us. But one has testified somewhere, which I really appreciate, by the way. Because he's going to quote the Old Testament and says, well, somebody said something somewhere. And I don't know where it is, but this is what he said. I mean, that's right. <laughs> I don't know what book it is. I don't know the chapter verse, but I know it's in there somewhere. And, and he quotes that. And it's biblical, apparently, to quote scripture that way. So, <laughs> whoo, <laughs> off the hook. So, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? Or the Son of Man, that you're concerned about Him. You have made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor. And you've appointed Him over the works of your hands. So he's beginning to, to show that man is in dominion. You've made Him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned Him with glory and honor. And have appointed Him uh, over the works of your, of, your, uh, of your hands. Verse 8, And you've put all things in subjection under his feet. This is what God did in Genesis 1. You have dominion. Rule. Reign well. And in order to reign well, man needed to trust who? Trust in God. But did he? No. As in the garden scene that we see in Genesis 3, we see man not trusting in God, not putting his faith in God, but instead choosing to place his faith in himself. Choosing to place his faith in his own abilities and, and denying God. And so the result was he lost it. Um, what does that mean? Like lower, um, lower than the angels if, if we are seeing mm-hmm. heavenly places? Um, it means that it seems that we are more, like, more important than the angels. Mm-hmm. What, he, what he's saying here is, goes on now, For in subjecting all things to him, there is nothing left, there is nothing that was not subject to man, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. You see, what ended up happening is man now has lost dominion. He's lost that authority. We think we have authority. We think we've got power, right? I mean, we, we, are, we are smart, intelligent creators. And we, we design buildings and we try to make them earthquake-proof and hurricane-proof and tornado-proof and fire-proof. And we do all these things, and then what do we discover? They're not. That we, we don't stand up to what this world can throw at us. That a tsunami will come and it will wipe out a city. That an earthquake will ravish a mighty city like Japan or a really poor city and country like Haiti. And we can't predict it. We can't control it. And we think we're great. And then all of a sudden we have one that was more powerful than we could ever imagine. And hear all the experts say, we just didn't think there would be one that big. And so we designed for that one only until another one hits us. We have the hurricane five storms, and then soon we'll discover now there's hurricane six storms. We didn't think they could be that powerful. And the reason is we don't control. We've lost that control now. And so all things are right now no longer subject to him. 
And this is why man was now made lower than the angels. Because what man now needs to do is he now needs to learn to trust before he can have that authority back. Whereas before, man was given that authority, given dominion, and he lost it because he didn't trust. God now has placed man lower than the angel, in, angels in order that man can now learn to trust that might we be restored to that place of dominion. I, I don't want to get into the, the, the nitty-gritty of the parable, but you know, you think about the, the parable that Jesus gives about how you know, the, the ones that reign well and rule well, they will be given cities. They will be given uh, authority and dominion. What that looks like, I'm not completely clear and not really the point right now, I think. But it's this idea that we're going to be returned to what God intended back in Genesis 1. Have dominion and rule. But for now, we don't have that. And that's so that we might be learn to be faithful in little things in order that when that time comes and we're ret- returned to that position, that we will reign well. Does that make sense? Is that clear to everyone? Or is that... So this is... This is what God's purpose for man was, which was to reign, but he lost it. And so what Jesus does now is he now comes to taste death for all to bring many to glory. So here in Hebrews 2 verses 9 to 13, that's the, the, the point that he's going to try to make here. <clears throat> so verse 9, he says, But we do not see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus then, he is made lower than the angels for a moment. And the reason being is to rescue who? Rescue us. For it's fitting for him, for all who are things and through whom all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation, excuse me, through sufferings, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. I want you to see here, the point that Jesus came as a man is because no angel could save us here. Jesus had to come as a man in order to save us, in order to rescue us, in order to be able to relate to us, to endure what we've gone through, to restore it. So he takes it upon himself. Uh, a way to illustrate this is kind of a, if, if a man wants to understand a woman who's pregnant, he needs to become pregnant as, himself. And I'm not upset in the least bit that that's not possible. But this is what he's done. He's, you know, in this movie, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the former Mr. Shriver, he, Mr. Shriver, he gets pregnant. And now, going through pregnancy, going through labor and delivery, he can now honestly say, I know what it's like to a pregnant woman. I've been there and I've experienced it. And that's what Jesus has done. He's gone through this in order to be able to connect with us, to relate to us. Does that make sense? I know, guys, it's a frightening illustration, but don't worry, it's... Not going to happen. Um, and what we see here is, I think, some interesting things. Um, 
Here he's bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, the perfect the author of, the, of their salvation isn't saying to make Jesus better. It's more the idea of to complete the work that he's done. And he did it through sufferings. And by doing so, he's now made many sons of glory. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And so who is Jesus to us? He's our brother. He's our older brother. That's the connection. And he's not ashamed of that. How many people have younger brothers or younger sisters? I don't know if I should ask you this question, Tina, but were you ever ashamed of your younger brothers? Plug your ears, guys. Don't listen to this. No? Well, good for you. I was ashamed of my older brothers. <laughs> There are times they just, you know, would embarrass me. They'd make fun of me because I was the youngest. Maybe I should ask them the question. <laughs> but, but there's this idea that Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's proud. Sometimes I wonder why. <laughs> but He is. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to invite us into the family. And God saw fit to do that through... Through sufferings. Which is really a, a glimpse of what's going to come later on in the book, in chapter 12, which is a great chapter, at least the first half, all about sufferings. But remember the audience that this writer is writing to. Who is he speaking to? Hebrew Christians. Who are likely in which city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem which is the, the center point of persecution in Christianity right now. If you are a Hebrew Christian, you are under intense persecution, intense suffering. That's what they're going through. Many have lost their homes, their families, their businesses, their finances, their, their hopes and dreams. Some lost their families. They, they've gone through incredible turmoil, all because of their faith. All because they chose to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they face now great persecution. And so he's writing to them to encourage them there. Jesus suffered too. But that was part of his journey to bring us to salvation, to bring us to, to glory. And, you know, parallel to this, as we see in Romans 8 and verse 16, I think it is, it says that we've no longer given the um, slavery or the fear of slavery. Now we're sons. We cry, Abba, Father. We get to be co-heirs or joint heirs with God, with Jesus, if we suffer with Him. And so there's suffering for you and I as well. And he's going to explain that in great detail in chapter 12. But he gives, us, gives the readers here a glimpse of it at this point. That if he saw right to perfect Jesus, to perfect our salvation through sufferings, then it's going to happen to us as well. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. You know, Martin Luther, he, he did us all a great favor. He led the Reformation, or was a big part of the Reformation. There was many other people as well, but he had a big part in the Reformation which was based on justification by 
by faith. At the time, it was justification by works and money. How much money you could donate to the Catholic Church. That determined your justification. Well, that was great. And now, we're, we're, we're benefiting from all the hard work that Luther did. But now we're coming to an understanding that we're not just justified by faith, but we're now sanctified by faith. That we live by faith today. <clears throat> Justification takes care of my past and the fact that I'm now made acceptable, but now I live by faith. I'm sanctified by faith. Why? Who's the one that sanctifies? He who sanctifies. You see, the mistake we've made is we say, well, yes, we're justified by faith, but now we're sanctified by our works. No. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. First, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30 By his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become unto us our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification. He's the reason that we're sanctified. So it's all by faith. We live by faith. We're saved by faith. We continue to live by faith. And so he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation will sing your praise. I will put my trust in him and again behold, I and the children whom God has given me. That's our family. Isn't that an awesome family? And so then, verses 14 and 15, <clears throat> he's going to now begin to talk about how the, the power of the devil has been destroyed. Now, this, <clears throat> this word destroy, if you have the King James Bible, that's what they use in verses 14 and 15. They talk about how the, the power of the devil has been destroyed. <clears throat> destroyed doesn't mean annihilated. Really what it's, it says here. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You don't have to look very far to, to see the devil is alive and well. That's the reality of it. But he has been made powerless over us. He's lost dominion over us. How? Because Jesus came as a man. He partook of the same. He became a man and he died that through death, through the cross, he might overcome the power of death. And that being the devil, the one who has the power of death and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Have you ever sat back and noticed how our world is terrified of dying? All the way from, you know, the people who used to search for the fountain of youth, thinking if they could just drink this magic elixir, they'll live forever. And if that doesn't work, then I will, I will do all my, my, I can in order to stay healthy so I can live a long life. Uh, then there's others who try to look like they're young and with, you know, facial creams and surgeries and, and, and hairdos and, and all kinds of things. And, and then there's others who decide that I will live into the next generation through my legacy through what I leave behind. And so there's this idea that this hope that somehow my name, if not myself, will live on forever. Because we're afraid of death. We're afraid of just disappearing. But we don't have to share that fear. 
we don't have to worry about the end. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He says, this life here on earth, this earth, is, is really but the preface or the introduction to the book. That when we get to the sweet by and by of eternity, wherever, you know, whether you go early or you're there for the, the exit, whatever that looks like and whatever that is, that's just the beginning. That we then begin to really experience life in its fullness. And, and I can't wait. I look forward to what that's going to be like. I haven't the foggiest what it's going to look like. But I look forward to it. And <clears throat> what he's saying is that we don't have to fear. In fact, we can look forward to it with, with excitement. <clears throat> and <clears throat> what that tells us then is that what happens here has a, has a purpose in, the, in eternity. That this life isn't just for nothing. It's the beginning of something even greater, something even more fantastic. But what happens here on this earth does matter in eternity. Again, I don't know exactly all that looks like, but on a simple illustration, a simple sense, think about salvation. A simple decision to put your faith in Christ, does that have impacts on eternity? Incredible ones. Well, that one simple small act matters, then why not other acts? I think they do. And what he's doing to this, this, um, this writer is he's, he's opening up their eyes. He's getting them to see beyond their current situation, their current circumstances. How many people have gone through suffering? And when suffering is really bad... You know, the best position is often the fetal position. Have you been there? When it's just so rough, you just, you don't know if you can get out of bed. You don't know if life has got any future or any promise for you. And, and you think, I should just pack it in. That's what these people are at right now. I'm hated. I'm rejected. I don't know where my next meal is going to come from, maybe. I've lost my family. I've lost everything. And when you have that, that happening, you tend to just get very closed in to the present circumstances. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to do is open up their eyes. There's far more. There's far more out there. And what's out there? You don't have to fear death. Because when you physically die, introduction's over. Let the real story begin. Does that make sense? So, I, I'm not afraid of death. As Paul says, for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. I mean, if someone dies here that's a Christian, the only one that loses is us, and the ones left behind. Because we lose that person. Whereas they are in paradise. And then the fourth point, verses 16 and 17, he's become a priest for men and to make an offering for their sins. Verse 16, 17 says, For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, remember the argument here is Jesus is greater than the angels. He didn't die for the angels. 
He didn't rescue Satan and the other one-third of the angels that fell, followed him into rebellion. He died for who? For, us. for you and I. And therefore, he's been made like his brethren in all things, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to Hebrews 5 and 7 in greater detail about being a high priest. But to, in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, when was the last time someone used the word propitiation in a sentence? The last probably day, right? Used it today? Anyone? This week? Month? Year? Decade? Century? <laughs> we don't often use the word propitiation. So, but anyone know what the word propitiation means? It's, it's a sacrifice. But specifically, it's a wrath-averting sacrifice. Now, I make that point because there's a teaching out there that, that says that, you know, Jesus didn't die for our sins, the penalty of our sins. That it doesn't make sense when you understand a loving God, that the loving God would pour out the wrath he had on us on his son instead, because that doesn't add up to love. And that's not the case. He didn't die just as that teaching says, the sickness of our sins he died for the penalty of our sins, the punishment. Jesus took upon himself the wrath, the punishment, the condemnation that was deserved to you and I as a result of sinning in the garden with Adam. He was the propitiation. He was the wrath-averting sacrifice for our sins. And that really shows the greater love of Jesus. You see, if Jesus just died for the sickness of sins then why is there any forgiveness necessary? I mean, you don't need to forgive somebody who does something because they're sick. My, my sister, my younger sister, who's mentally handicapped, she does things that you, know, you and I just would never do or society would never seem accept, deem acceptable. Do we need to forgive her when she does something like that? No. She has an, she has an illness. She has a problem. We understand that. And so there's... There's so much leeway there. There's no forgiveness required. Well, if man's sins were just a result of his sickness, then why forgiveness? Uh, forgiveness was important. But this shows the greater love of Jesus. That because we needed that forgiveness, he took that upon himself. He didn't die for the sickness of our sins. He died for the penalty, the punishment that we deserved. He was our propitiation. No angel could do that. It had to be a man to save the man. No angel could do that. So therefore, Jesus is better. Does that make sense? And then the last point, that as a high priest, he's able to help us as we're being tested. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he, was, he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The word tempted here is the idea of being tested, being tried, being proven. And it's not being tested to discover who he is, but being tested to prove who he is. So, you know, <clears throat> um, scientists, if they want to test a gold bar, they're not discovering if it's gold, they're proving that it's gold. And that's the testing that Jesus endured. It wasn't to discover if he's the Savior. It's to prove that he's the Savior. And because he suffered, because he's gone through it, he's now able to come to 
our aid. He's, no, he's able to help us now. He's able to walk, that, uh, to walk us along that path because he's already been there. He's already faced that scrutiny, that examination, and he knows how to deal with it. Does that make sense? So the, the illustration of that then is kind of like someone who previously wrote an exam, got 100% on it, and now he gets to come and help you write yours. So that's what Jesus has done. He's written the exam, and he passed it 100%. He got every single question right. And he doesn't then come and say, well, let me tell you about the questions, and I'll, I'll give you the answers, and then you can go write it. He doesn't help you study. He's not your tutor. He does something far better. He comes with you into the examination room and he writes the test with you. And so what do we need to do when we sit down and we read a question? What, what ought we to do? Turn to Jesus. What was your answer for question one? C. Good. What's your answer for question two? B. Okay. So we go to him. That's the argument this, this uh, author is making. Jesus is better, so trust in him. He's walked his path, now go with him. He's written the exam, now ask him. The problem we get is, I read the question three and I say, I know the answer. And I just go and I, I circle the, the answer. And all the while Jesus is saying, mm, nope. <laughs> but we don't turn to him. We don't trust in him. We trust in our own ability. And does it work? Not at all. So Jesus is better. So trust in Him. Put your faith in Him. Live by faith. Does that make sense? Any questions then on that? I know we went through the first two chapters pretty quickly, but... So, Jesus versus the prophets, who wins? Jesus versus the angels, who wins? So Jesus is, so live by faith. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.